Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 29 of Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatil. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest, an accomplished speaker, author, and innovator in the IT industry. He's named to the top 40 under 40 list and the top 20 global channel visionary by Channel Pro. He's often sought out for keynotes, consulting, thought leadership, and industry guidance. He spent his 22-year career in various executive sales, marketing channel, and strategy roles within IBM, Lenovo, and Autotask, most recently as the co-founder and CEO of Channelize. He led a startup that disrupted the social, mobile, and predictive analytics software industry for channel programs. It's my pleasure to introduce Jay McBain. Welcome, Jay. Well, thank you for that uh, nice introduction and glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Man, you know, you're so busy, I can't keep track of you. You're traveling all over the world. Yeah, we've, uh, it was actually a personal um, thing with, uh, with my wife and I. Uh, we're kind of on a road to see 100 countries. We're, I think we're done about 78 of them now. But, Holy um, cow, I'm, I just, just, I'm yeah, just, I just trying to hit all 50 states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I grew up in a family that did a lot of driving, so I've hit 48 of the, of the 50 states and all 10 Canadian provinces. So, Wow. And I've done this continent, and um, I did one of those quizzes on Facebook last night for, for fun, and it was, uh, you know, 100 uh, cities you have to see. And I think I scored 72 out of 100, but I ranked number one out of 260,000 people, which I thought was a little bit odd because there's people that travel way more than I do. <laughs> it could be their repeat customers traveling to the same place. That's it. That's pretty nice. So where was your favorite place that you ever traveled to? That's a hard question. It's the most common question I get, but yeah. um, I have a number of, the reason for doing these 100 countries is we do them really quick. Sometimes we're only a day or two in every country. Uh, the whole point is, you know, later on when we do have more time to go spend a month in a place, yeah. use, you know, a half dozen or a dozen places that we'll go back and spend way more time in. So, you know, I love Prague. Um, you know, we just went to Edinburgh in uh, nice. Scotland and loved that. And there are places in Asia that we, uh, that we love. Uh, we love South Africa. Uh, we're going to Peru in a month. So um, my wife has taken her MBA, so uh, <laughs> gets to go and do something on Machu Picchu, I think. So uh, I'll let you know, but uh, it'll, ah. we're trying to find the, uh, the places to go back to. Now, how do you manage going with a family? Well, that's probably a, a topic for another conversation, but um, it's, uh, it's one of those you just bear down and do it. Uh, how do you possibly take, you know, two kids under two, on a 24 hour flight to Australia and then to five other countries in, in seven days. And you just, uh, you know, like traveling's hard enough, you just grab one, you know, kid under each arm and all the luggage and, and just make it happen. You forget about it hours later, so. Well, yeah, with 24 hours, yeah, after about 10, it probably becomes routine. It does. Nice, nice. Well, super excited for you. Thanks. So, yeah, so Jay, um, so I know that you're really uh, top-notch with channel. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is you do? Uh, sure. I'm not even sure some days what I do, but uh, <laughs> the place I've grown up and the industry I've grown up is, is the global IT channel and, and telecommunications channel. Uh, but if you look at channels more broadly, 75% mm -hmm. of all world trade goes indirectly. Uh, other than buying a Tesla today, the only you know car you can buy is through a dealer. 
when you buy a TV, it's through a retailer, you know, everything down to a jar of peanut butter. Everything you buy today basically goes through some middle channel to get to you. And that is all 27 industries have these channels that get a product from, you know, raw materials through the supply chain and, and in a way that, uh, that you consume it. So uh, channels, once you take away the, the nomenclature, um, they all have similar challenges in terms of, you know, finding the right partners, uh, developing them, maintaining them, motivating them, enabling them, and, you know, keeping them uh, engaged, all these different things. They go by different words, but, you know, the, the challenges are, are the same. So that's where I spend most of my days in the middle of these, uh, in, in the middle of these channels around the world. And, um, you know, I, I try to spend it a little bit as a futurist, you know, where are we going to be in a couple of years, maybe five years from now, what's it all going to look like and what can you do with your business today to prepare for that future? Yeah. So let's elaborate on that. So when you work with a prospective client, take us through it. How do you, how do you work with them? Sure. It's, it's very different. And uh, a lot of the, the work I do today is basically just inbound consulting. Someone will read a blog of, of one type and uh, say, you know, as they're Googling things, you know, that's the problem we're having. And uh, I tend to be very tactical, which doesn't make me a great consultant because, you know, you're supposed to spend way more time on strategy because it's more profitable that way. <laughs> but uh, I love to get in and just roll up the sleeves and, and just start, you know, executing on, uh, you know, a number of different things that are proven to work. And um so that's usually it's an inbound opportunity and then I'll engage, you know, on a certain area that they're having trouble with and, um, you know, just kind of collect, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of best practices from around the world and, you know, do my best to, um, um, you know, get those down to a manageable group of, of things that, uh, that can be done. Gotcha. So let's take a business like mine, for example, given that we're both, uh, we're both in the telecom field, right? Yep. So for a telecom uh, vendor that wanted to build a channel, for example, right? Uh, where, at what point would you come in? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm working, you know, with one of the, well, the biggest phone company in Australia. And, uh, and, and they contacted me and they were having an issue uh, it was what I call shadow channels. I just made up the name, but uh, we've lived now for 10 years in this area of what was called shadow IT or rogue IT, where customers would, you know, lines of business would go off and make a decision. IT wasn't involved. And, um, you know, they're making these million dollar technology decisions uh, outside of the norm, outside of what we do every day. And the people who influence that I called shadow channels because they're not you and I, you know, coming from the telco field or the IT field. They're very, very different people. And so I spent a lot of time writing about and thinking about these shadow channels that um, are, are now a big part of, um, of everyday business. So Gartner had a couple statistics that, um, you know, kind of dropped my jaw a little bit. Uh, one is, you know, 10 years ago, 90% of technology decisions were made by IT, CIOs and, and IT managers. Today, it's flipped almost 180 degrees where 72% of the decisions are made in the lines of business. So VPs of marketing and sales and operations and finance and HR and all the way down the list are making the decisions. And in many cases, IT, you know, may be brought in at the end or, you know, aren't involved at all. So this shadow channels, these shadow decisions have become the new normal. 
interesting you say that because I just had an, uh, an incident today. I called a prospective customer and they told me to call the marketing department and I thought they were just pulling my leg. Right. So Very that's, interesting. That's 72% of all technology spend decisions today are being made outside of IT. And Gartner is predicting within a few years, it'll be 90%. So you can basically look at your business today and you know, you're going to have to do a little bit of transformation where you're going to be spending 90% of your time in the marketing department, in the sales department, in the operations, the finance, the HR, all the other vice presidents in your customers are the ones making technology decisions. How does that work? I mean, they, they don't really know what the ramifications are. Well, they don't. And, you know, somebody has to play the adult in the room at some point is, is one of my, the things that I argue. Uh, but they don't need or want to make technology decisions. Right. They have to make business decisions. So that VP of marketing that you were told to call wants to drive more leads. That's a business decision that they're making. And today with digital marketing and everything else, the way to drive more leads is obviously through a combination of email and social and content marketing and everything's digital. Yeah. So, you know, they have to make a decision at that point to bring in a marketing automation system made by a Marketo, Pardot, Acton, Eloqua, HubSpot, a company like that. So if you walk down that decision as a VP of marketing, uh, you're not building a billboard, you're not doing a Super Bowl ad here. You know, you're making a technology decision, probably a multi-million dollar one, depending on the size of your company. And so you ask yourself as that VP of marketing, who are you going to invite in as influencers to your decision? And this is the key crux to your question is what do we do? Mm -hmm. So if I give you that job right now as VP of marketing, but it's a little bit more technical than that. It's let's say at a mid-size ambulatory care clinic, healthcare in upstate New York. So you're in that position, you're going to do a bunch of Googling. You're going to do everything you can to, um, to, to find out more about how to drive leads in that scenario. But you're going to invite into the room probably somebody from a SaaS ecosystem like Marketo or HubSpot or, or something like that. You're going to invite in one of their partners to help you. You're probably also in the room going to have somebody from the industry. It'd be great if not just a, a healthcare person that knows HIPAA or high tech, but somebody specifically that knows ambulatory care and how to drive leads in ambulatory care clinics. So that's an industry very we'll talk about it in a minute, but that's a vector focused person that knows not just about, you know, what you do at a high level, but has been successful in the past at implementing what you want to do. The third person in the room is probably an ISV or two software vendor that builds on top of a Marketo and makes it really sing in a mid-sized clinic environment. So that's what their specialty is. It's a nice, uh, you know, company that's specialized in that area. You know, the fourth person in the room is probably a startup. And that is, uh, you know, somebody who's built a widget to do something specifically for you. And they're really looking at their, you know, first few customers. So they're doing everything they can to make you successful, along with that ISV, along with the other people in the room. And then the final person I figure is probably like a born in the cloud implementation partner. That in the past, they put in Marketo or HubSpot They've combined it with that ISV in the room. You know, they're, they're aware of the startup. They can work with all of those things. 
and their world is really about collecting, you know, three or $4 for every dollar you're going to spend with Marketo. And those five people are now the people helping you make the decision. It's not the guy who installed the network or charges you a managed services fee every month. It's not the person that put in the printers and fixes them. It is literally this new group of people that most vendors today don't have in their arsenal or don't have in their partner program. This goes for the Verizons, the AT&Ts, Telstra, who's in Australia. It goes for every big telco. They haven't really recruited these people and they don't know who they are. And that's in the next you know, few years going to be critical that they enter the room. I'm taking notes on this. <laughs> hey, it's on video. You, you'll yeah. have a That's right. That's right. Wow, this is great information. So what you just did was you gave us the blueprints on how to build a successful business in 2017. It's a, it's a different business. And the one that we thought, and I was, um, I'm a futurist and I was guilty of this. I thought that our channel, which is going through a big demographic turn right now, 30% of all IT and telco partners have gone away since 2008, since the recession. The remaining 70%, 40% of them are retiring in the next four or five years. That's so true. That's so So true. We're going through, if you go to your latest, uh, you know, channel event and, you know, look at the color of hair in the room, um, it's a, it's an older demographic. We thought that their kids, we thought that millennials, we thought that all these new people were going to come in and buy these businesses and take them over from their parents or do whatever, but we're going to have this channel for the long term. And what's happening is is that's not the case. Uh, These businesses are having trouble being sold if they're small. Their kids don't want the business and millennials aren't working in the channel. And the reasons are, you know, there's a number of them, but number one, every company today is a technology company. So if you go to work for a hotel, they're now competing against Airbnb. You go work at a car company and they're competing against Uber and Tesla. So every company in every industry is now a technology company. So if you want a technology position, you can work anywhere now. Yeah. And be happy. You don't have to go work at IBM or Microsoft. You can work everywhere. And as a millennial, you know, a lot of these companies are, you know, cooler than your traditional, you know, IT or telco companies. So that's happening. Uh, CompTIA actually, you know, did a study and the technology industry doesn't even rank in the top 10 to where millennials want to work. So it's a, it's a big difference. And this channel that we've always had, this really robust channel, uh, isn't in a mode right now to replace itself. So it's kind of a, it's interesting times to be sure. Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely going to be a reshuffling of the industry. I know from my own personal experience, just my contacts. And like you said, a lot of the people that I've dealt with since 2008 are either no longer here or on their way out. Um, there are a lot of older people in this industry, uh, indeed. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. So, you know, where are the millennials going? I talked about the SaaS ecosystem. Uh, So I'll use an example, the biggest SaaS company in the world, Salesforce. They have 695 partners that drive $20 billion in services. So these services are thousands and thousands of dollars per person per day. The backlog right now is about six months to get one of these people. And as fast as they can certify people, they get them deployed and they just can't bring in people fast enough. So if you were in the early 80s, you know, this, you know, IBM PC was the place to be. 
yeah. if you're in the early 90s it was the uh, microsoft ecosystem if you're in the early 2000s it was e-business and internet and today it's SaaS. Um, if you're young and want to be rich uh, or if you're young and just want to be a freelancer you go and you work for you know kind of like partners did 30 years ago you get busy enough on your own that you hire a friend then the friend gets too busy so you hire another friend then all of a sudden you look around and you're a CEO of a company that's driving millions of dollars of revenue and you're trying to figure to yourself how did that happen and so these um, you know, younger people today that's exactly what they're doing they're getting certified in these ecosystems and it could be NetSuite, Workday, Marketo, HubSpot, it can be Salesforce, any of these SaaS ecosystems, they're charging out four to five dollars per dollar of SaaS revenue. So if you pay Salesforce a million dollars for an implementation, uh, sorry, for the software, the implementation is going to be five times that amount. Yeah. They're chasing five million dollars of follow-on revenue so they don't even care if Salesforce pays them a margin. They don't want it. A finder's fee is nice because they can put it towards hiring more people. But in the end, they're chasing the services, which right now, you know, demand is far outstripping supply. And, you know, SaaS is really where everything is going. I mean, take a look at the telecom industry. Um, now everything is, is uh, subscription-based. In fact, I had a customer that told me that he demanded that I provide SaaS. This was before the days that I was in the cloud. I was, I was uh, just specializing in Avaya, which is premise-based. And then he said, look, if you don't provide SaaS, we're going somewhere else. <laughs> and that got me thinking, hey, you know, let me look at that. And uh, that, you know, I, I basically changed my strategy. I mean, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was really the market that was changing. But SaaS is really where everything is today. Yeah. So we built a company five years ago called Channelize, and we did 100% of the company in the cloud. So we didn't own a server. We didn't own, you know, much in terms of IT. I always said if the building burnt down, you know, one trip to the Apple store or Best Buy and we're back in business. There you go. And we had 61 pieces of SaaS that we paid for, right from development to sales to marketing to finance, all the way through HR, all the way through the organization. It all integrated with each other. Uh, we were technical people, so we didn't hire outside people to do it. But every time we bought a new piece of SaaS, um, you know, we made sure that it worked with the other, you know, 61 pieces of SaaS that we had. And so we never typed in a customer's name more than once. You know, we never had to type in an address more than once. You know, everything was integrated backwards and forwards across every department. And, you know, obviously everything ran through a browser. So it was the cleanest, you know, it was backed up, it was secure. And for us, it was $20 per person per month or $5 per person per month. You know, the actual um, ability to bootstrap a company nowadays um, is huge. I mean, there's no yeah. millions of dollars of upfront investment that you need to make. One of the things I love talking about when people ask me, you know, what's the benefit of the cloud is exactly what you just said. If you think about it, 10, 20 years ago, if you were starting up a new business, you would need email, internet, phone, fax, CRM. I mean, just those five things for starters. And, you know, let's talk about email. If you wanted to get Microsoft Exchange, what you would need 
uh, what type of an investment you need to make. You need a server, you need uh, a Windows license, you need exchange license, you need to hire somebody to install it to maintain it. And what happens if the server breaks, if it crashes, gets stolen, gets hacked? You need backup, you need disaster recovery, you need a, you know, a number of things. And then if, uh, if there's a power outage or a natural disaster, that's it, your emails are gone. So unless the US government is actually looking for your emails, that's not a good thing. <laughs> right. NSA is the only one that has a backup at that point. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, well, no, I, you know, today, Office 365, it's $6 per person per month. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and you're off to the races. And you, know, you don't have to buy people laptops anymore because they prefer to work on their own devices. On their mobile phone, you got your whole office. I got my CRM on my mobile phone. Right. Uh, I don't need anything else. Yeah. So it's a big change. Uh, the environment, though, for the channel is much different. Most of the channel right now is not making that transformation, which is, um, you know, for most vendors, is, is scaring them quite a bit right now. Again, they assumed that there'd be a new generation. They assumed that everybody would, you know, make, they'd make it late, but they'd make that, you know, that corner to start serving these lines of business. And, and I predict it's not going to happen. It's just, it's, um, it's too far gone. And two people are too late in their careers to want to, you know, throw up everything and, and start all over again. Um, so, you know, the old traditional break, fix and managed services and those type of businesses are still good businesses. Um, you know, like the hardware companies, you look at the Cisco's and IBM's and Lenovo's and Dell's and HP's, all of that business is on a decline, but it's only single digit decline it's not dropping by 30% a year and gone in three years. We've got a strong 10 year uh, workout of all of this type of stuff. People are still buying routers, they're still buying servers, they're still buying all this stuff. They're just buying less of it. So if you're good at what you do and you can market and you can sell, you can be successful as the you know, train leaves the station. And if you're not gonna be in business you know, in 10 years, it's all not gonna matter. You're not gonna have to make the transition. But um, it's a little bit perilous for those companies who don't really understand who's influencing today these new sets of millions of dollars of you know, customer technology decisions. Yeah, definitely. As, as was evidenced by my experience today, Everything, everything's changing. Right. So what advice would you give to somebody that's either starting out uh, today or somebody that has an established business that wants to build a new channel? Uh, from the partner standpoint or a vendor standpoint? Um, let's say, let's say from, from the vendor standpoint. Okay, so from, from a vendor standpoint, um, you have to understand where your product fits, first of all. Um, you know, you want to be part of that. We talked about the clinic and in the VP of marketing. You want to be in that room. But if you're selling a router, nowhere along the Marketo HubSpot decision comes in a router. You know, maybe they have to upgrade their Wi-Fi or something, but probably not. So you have to understand where you can play. But if you're a security piece of software, you definitely should be in the room and you should play the adult in the room in that scenario. So you need to figure out of those five influencers, how you start influencing the influencer. Mm. You ask them three questions. What do they read? Where do they go? And who do they follow? So, you know, we read 16 magazines globally in the IT channel, telco channel. Uh, we go to 150 trade shows across the world every year that are channel related. And we follow, and I've got it published on my blog, a group of 100 of the most influential people. 
But if you go ask the Marketo person or if you ask that industry expert in healthcare, they have a very different answer. By the way, you know, accounting companies or CPAs, 10 years ago, you know, less than 10% of them sold any software. Today, it's over 50%. In a couple of years, it'll be 80%. If you look at their websites, they look like technology providers. They do all the services now. You look at legal companies, the exact same thing. You look at digital agencies. So in that marketing scenario, people that used to make the billboards and Super Bowl ads now sell software and do all the services, integration services. They've all had to transform their businesses to stay alive. And they're now competing with you and with traditional partners in the IT channel. So now that they're competing, a vendor may have to look to build out their program by 5x. You know, so have five times the amount of partners that you have today. And they're all different. You'd have to motivate them, incent them, enable them, do all those things different. And it's going to be a big learning curve, you know, in the next, uh, next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. So for the partners, really two things. Uh, one is to understand this idea of what a vector is. Because 10 years ago, all partners, you know, figured out they had to verticalize. Being a generalist just didn't work. So you have to look at the market you're in, the city you, you serve, figure out where the, the business is and specialize in those areas. But specialization today has also multiplied by five. So the best way to explain it is to go, go back to the example. You're that VP of marketing, you're trying to drive leads. It would be great to have people in the room that knew about marketing automation. It'd be great to have people in the room that knew about not just healthcare, but ambulatory care. So knew about mid-sized clinics. Narrow, narrow specialties. Right. You also you know, want somebody in the room that understands upstate New York because you know, doing business in Philadelphia or doing business in San Diego you know, may not be the same and driving leads may just not be the same. So having that regional geographic specialty you know, is, is also important. So there's all these vectors now that um, you know, become degrees of, um, of specialization. And you know, being that VP of marketing, I, I would rather fly in somebody that had been successful doing leads in a mid-sized clinic than I would the printer guy who may have read the HIPAA or High Tech Act you know, once in their life. So it's that degree of specialization that is now winning the day. And your degree of you know, success, I mean, your customer TAM, target addressable size, goes down by 99%. Now you're not calling on tens of thousands of customers in your city. I mean, you're calling on 12 clinics. But your chances of winning probably go over 50%. Once you start to get that business, you can then move into a different swim lane. So if you've done well in a mid-sized clinic, maybe you can go into a small hospital or into a smaller clinic. See. You've done well in marketing automation. Maybe you can go into data analytics or into um, prospecting as a piece of software add-on. A different swim lane. Maybe you've been successful in upstate New York. Now you're going to try out New Jersey, which is you know, quasi-similar in, in law statutes and everything else. Whatever it is, you're going to start to be successful in a much more narrow area. And then you're going to swim in you know, adjacent swim lanes to make your business grow. Wow, this is really giving me a lot to think about, and I'm sure I'm sure everybody watching this is you know their minds are blown because this is really great information. 
And if you think about it, it is so counterintuitive to what everybody is doing. Um, you know, the, the typical, um, the typical methodology is just blast it out there and, you know, cast lines and see which fish bite. And what you're saying is now do the opposite, take the surgical approach. Right. And go after a specific narrow focus and you'll be successful there. Yeah. So, I mean, it becomes a word of mouth as well. So yeah, pretend you're that VP of marketing again, and you're building up your little network to help you drive more leads. You're going to ask the people in the room. You're going to ask the Marketo guy, you know, who in upstate New York have you had success with in this area? You're going to ask the industry person. You're going to ask the ISV. You're going to ask the startups. You're going to ask everybody, you know, who has the capabilities. And I understand that there's some security, there's some backup, disaster recovery. Like there's some other, you know, adult things we need to talk about because, you know, I don't want to get fired, nor do I want to put my CEO in jail. That's not great job security. Yeah. So I don't want to start sending out mass emails and breaking patient confidentiality, you know, laws and other things. So at some point I need somebody that understands all that stuff. Uh, you're not going to search on the internet for that. You're going to ask the people that you've already built as part of your network and the word of mouth will swing And these groups of people, I think will participate with each other at, you know, many, many clinics as, as they, uh, as, as they move on. Gotcha. Wow. Um, so Jay, who would be an ideal client for you? Uh, I'm actually, you know, interested in, um, you know, kind of the future of the channel, uh, vendors that um, are looking to, uh, you know, looking into this shadow channel phenomenon, worried about the demographics of their own channel, figuring out how to architect, you know, what these new channels and influencers look like. That's the type of stuff that I really, you know, get up in the morning and jump out of bed, you know, and love to do. And, you know, the world's changing so fast that, um, you know, the rules that you made 18 months ago are just not going to take you forward. Yeah, definitely. Gotcha. So, Jay, how did you get into all this? Uh, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll say the short version. Uh, I worked at IBM back in 94 as an intern uh, with college best thing I ever did. And one day I was working in the help desk, taking one 800 calls. So, you know, if you bought an IBM Aptiva in 1994 and you know, your NHL hockey wouldn't run on it. I was up in Canada. Uh, I was the guy that picked up the phone when you called IBM <laughs> and, you know, at the same time as helping customers as a great internship, they were looking at the time for people that could go talk to people. IBM research at the time. And since that time has been number one patents, they were hiring 10% of the world PhDs at that time in all disciplines, chemistry, physics, biology, uh, everything else. Um, and they needed their, you know, evangelists and futurists to go talk to audiences. So I put out my hand, I was, you know, 22 or 23 years old and said, Hey, I'm a futurist. <laughs> and uh, nobody else, you know, with gray hair put up their hands. So they chose me. And I got to go on TV and I got to go in front of, you know, universities and, and, K to 12 and got to go in front of business, business audiences. Right at that time, three things happened. One is they were just finishing Deep Blue, which ended up beating Gary Kasparov at chess, which ended up becoming IBM Watson. Ah. So the whole start of AI was right at 1994. Uh, second is um, 
uh, we had just demonstrated a network that ran in your body and used the electrical charge inside your body to transmit information. Holy cow. You and I shaking hands could exchange a business card just with the electricity in our own bodies. You know that when you shock yourself, you carry electricity. We were able to use that electricity for networking. Obviously, that's never come to be. Uh, but the third and most exciting was uh, for Star Trek fans. Uh, IBM fellows, about three or four senior IBM fellows, along with Harvard and MIT and a number of others, went away for a few years to study teleportation. <laughs> it was literally beam me up, Scotty, teleportation. Wow. And they came back and right around that time, 1995, I think it was, said it was possible. And they backed it up with a 7,000-page dissertation with exactly how it could be done using a, um, a tunneling microscope that IBM had invented and won a Nobel Prize for. It just wanted to build better hard drives, but it ended up you know, being a transporter, <laughs> defeating cancer and doing other things. So this scanning electronic tunneling microscope was kind of the idea where you could break down things at the atomic level and recreate them in a different place. Mm. Um, so this at the time was a theory, but boy, do kids really get energized when you start talking about teleporting. That being said, with all the computing capability on earth now, uh, we probably, if you pulled it all together, barely have enough to transport one atom. <laughs> That's the level. And you could imagine back in 1994 where we were at. Yeah. But uh, later on, kids in Australia as part of their um, thesis proved, I think they moved a light photon or something from one room to the next. So they actually implemented the theory and proved that it could work. So something has been teleported by humans. Really nice, really nice. So I, so I bet the next thing they'll be teleporting is money. There it is. So, <laughs> you know, you think of teleportation, you think that, um, you know, Amazon and Tesla and Uber and companies like this are, are changing industry. Can you imagine what happens to FedEx, UPS, USPS? Yeah. It happens to everything once we could tell, you know, United Airlines, American Forget Airlines. Forget drones, just beam me the package. That's exactly what it is. So can you imagine the day that that actually is workable? You know, we have probably half the industries on earth would implode. You wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't need a hotel because you could just go back to your own bed. Yeah. You know, think of all the industries that would collapse in the era of teleportation. Anyway, this was futurist stuff. Uh, it got me going in this. I worked in the channel for 23 years, so I tried to, you know, combine the two and, uh, you know, just take a different view on it than, than others did in the industry. Yeah, really nice. And talking about Star Trek, so I read, I read a, an article recently that uh, some company or some organization just invented a tricorder. Nice. <laughs> So they're working a limited version. Yeah. I mean, Star Trek and Star Wars and other sci-fi has probably uh, been responsible for over three quarters of the technology we have to today. And, uh, the you know, I think the iPad is a good example of something that Picard walked around with. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely driving. Teleportation is another good example. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to live in a world that keeps, you know, moving towards you know, this, this idea of what sci-fi has laid out for us. Definitely. It's going to be more than just entertainment. It's going to be the blueprint of the future. Absolutely. 
Great. So Jay, what was your decision when you decided, you know, this, this is my thing and I want to start a business around it? Um, I'm not sure the, uh, the decision. Um, I had worked for IBM, Fortune 500, and then moved to Lenovo, which was a 499. I think we made the Fortune 500 by like 10 grand, like two ThinkPads. <laughs> uh, but then I worked for Autotask, which is a company that sells software that partners use, MSPs use to run their business. And they had about 350 people at the time and then did a startup. So I went from the you know, eighth biggest company in the world to the smallest company in the world and um, wanted to experience you know, a bunch of different things um, and you know, was lucky to do so. You know, at Channelize, we got to do stuff in social. Uh, we had a mobile product that um, got very popular, uh, still is, and uh, we got to work on artificial intelligence and uh, predictive analytics, kind of thinking the future of the cam mm. where maybe they could be augmented by a robot and, you know, helped in terms of what to do next based on millions and millions of data points. And it was just a, it was just a fun environment to be in. And now um, just working with companies and, uh, and, you know, trying to see if we can, um, you know, change a little bit of history. Yeah, absolutely. So what were some of the challenges you experienced along the way? Uh, one of the challenges uh, started at IBM is I was always, uh, I looked younger than, than I was. So I think when I was 22, I looked 12. <laughs> so I always felt that there was a credibility thing. So I think I always tried harder in, pres in presenting or in, you know, energy level and everything else to, you know, kind of win over the crowd or win over the, the person um, fast, you know, based on a number of things. And, you know, that ended up, that ended up working. Another challenge is, you know, I've moved eight times. Um, wow. I've been moved IBM. And um, so I've been, I've seen a lot of different things. I've, you know, lived in a lot of parts of North America. Um, you know, so that's been a bit of a challenge on the personal side, but, um, you know, professionally, it's, it's been interesting. And, um, you know, I think just the challenges from trying to translate, a lot of people have trouble, you know, translating Fortune 500 skills uh, to a small company and then to a startup. Yeah, um, where I, I loved it. I mean, the fact that you could take out, out your own garbage and had to clean your own windows and, you know, wash the dishes in the sink. And I mean, all those things are, um, you know, you'd never do at IBM. But, um, you know, when you're working with the channel and when you're working with 500,000 channel partners globally or 162,000 in North America, they're all entrepreneurs. They wash their own windows. They take out their own trash. And um, being an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs is a lot easier than working for a Fortune 500 company and saying that you know how it is to not make payroll or you know how it is to have to transform your business or you're not going to be around in six months. Yeah, you could relate a lot better to them and it helps with that authenticity. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was the, it was a challenge, but in the end, it was the best decision possible that you just don't stay, you know, for like your parents might have, you know, spent 30 years at one company or 40 years at one company. You know, nowadays you have to move around and you have to make, uh, make changes and stuff. Even today, I'm, I'm a da uh, data person. So I went and downloaded every channel chief in the world, 337 of them on the CRN list. And I went and read every single one of their LinkedIn's, filled out a spreadsheet with like 20 columns. So I just published a blog, you know, a couple of hours ago 
that basically give you the 10 rules on how to be a channel chief at a vendor. How many, you know, I, I use 10 criteria, you know, how old they are, how long they've been in their job, how long they've been in their company, what kind of education they have, how many companies they work for before getting to their current company. So all of these metrics for the first time ever, it kind of gives you a road to yeah. that job. It, it gives you an insight to that. Right. And, you know, using LinkedIn and using CRN, kind of using those two things. So it's just never been done. So nobody knows what the average or actual tenure of a channel chief is. No one knows how to get there or how much education you need or how much luck is involved or how much, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's now answered, you know, and it took a few days of, you know, spreadsheets and VLOOKUPs and COUNTIF statements and, and everything else. But, you know, there's now a nice, a piece of research there that shows somebody that does want, you know, a senior job at a vendor and how to go get it. Mm. So it, it sounds like uh, you may have a uh, skill set in HR as well. <laughs> <laughs> or just technology. I love spreadsheets, but uh, no, just a, a bill. It's just the analysis. It's kind of a, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell, uh, if you've read the guys at Freakonomics, it's that kind of thinking where you, you stare at a problem and then come at it from a completely different angle. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Really cool. So, Jay, what keeps you motivated every day? I think we've talked about the motivation part. Um, first of all, I love this industry. I love the people in it. And um, I love the change. You know, we're not bolting on bumpers here and, you know, having the same union job for 30 years. Literally, we're going out of business every six months unless we're making the right turns and making the right moves uh, in our own businesses. And, uh, you know, what, what I jump out of bed is, you know, trying to predict what those curves are going to be a little bit ahead of others and, you know, being able to help everyone. Yeah, for me, it's transparent. I'm not trying to sell books. I'm not trying to, you know, sell, you know, analysis here. I'm just I'm publishing everything I can, you know, get my hands on. And uh, just, you know, all boats rise in this industry. And I think that's my motivation is just kind of a, um, a rise for the industry and a survival for the industry as well, long term. Really nice. And isn't it interesting how the whole paradigm changed, the whole paradigm of success changed? It used to be that information was siloed. And nowadays, you, you, need, you, you will be more successful the more you share. And it used to be, I mean, they used to say it uh, in my, in my days, in my career that, you know, information is power. Yeah. You know, those who have the information have the power and information's now been democratized. So everyone has the information. Uh, everyone has, uh, you know, the Google search bar and, you know, even with WikiLeaks and everything else happening right now, <laughs> you can imagine a world where everything is going to be transparent and it just changes the, um, the calculus. On the, on, on the whole equation, when everyone has the same information which to work with, uh, power is not within the information now, power is, is using the information, analyzing the information, automating the information, and obviously executing on the information. Yeah, definitely. So talking about working with businesses that need to um, reinvent themselves or rise ahead of the curve or they go out of business in six months, um, you know, the statistics that 75% uh, of new businesses uh, that uh, start up will disappear within a year. And then I think it continues over five years, it goes down to 50%. What, 
Where do entrepreneurs go wrong? Well, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of things. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the startup that I did was we raised about $5 million. Uh, so I got to talk to hundreds of different VCs, you know, pitching the business and, and seeing how other people outside of our industry um, really uh, thought about business and put value against ideas. And once you get to do that over a hundred times in the pitch deck, you kind of learn um, what the value of an idea is. And once you've heard something enough times, you can actually boil it into, you know, a degree of success. Uh, so what frustrates me is on the internet, you read, you know, hundreds of blogs about how to be a great entrepreneur. And they, you know, they break up into a couple of categories. One is somebody who got lucky <laughs> or happened to be around people that got lucky. Um, so if you want to read a good book, it's Tipping Point. Sorry, it's uh, Malcolm Gladwell Outliers, who basically argued that um, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, while they're geniuses and phenomenal and everything else, would not have been Steve Jobs and Bill Gates if they were born five years earlier or five years later. They would have just needed a different implementation, that's all. Well, they wouldn't have had one, though. So five years earlier or five years later, there wasn't a business to be had like Microsoft or, uh, or Apple at, at that time. Now you could argue that they would have invented something else and taken another industry and somehow they're great genius. But he looked at hundreds of examples of that, and it's just not the case. We tend to um, immortalize these, these, these business leaders who obviously are really, really smart and really, really successful. but you know, we, we don't really assign the, you know, the luck number to that as well. Right situational, right place at the right time, or in the right industry, or following the right person, whatever it is. So we end up reading these blogs by people who start to, you know, smell their own exhaust. <laughs> who, you know, start to take personal, you know, credit for, you know, changes in society and everything else. Anyway, so that's kind of one camp. Then the other camp is kind of these fluff pieces. You always read them, you know, the, the 50 reasons why, you know, to be successful. Here's the 15 things that successful people do before breakfast. Here's the, I mean, you can read a million of those a day. And they're all identical. All 15 things and all 50 things, you could just write them down. They're just changed. They just change the words. Yeah. But it's just all generic. And it all doesn't work for everyone. So... When I define entrepreneurship, it's about the idea, it's about the execution, it's about the people you wrap around. Uh, but if I go back to execution, you've got to have co-founders that have, um, you know, different skills and, um, you know, can complement each other, but also take the business where it needs to do. Because you have to cover all 10 lines of business. You have to have somebody that's good at sales and marketing. You have to have somebody that's good at development and product building. You have to have somebody that's, um, you know, obviously a, a good leader. You need somebody that understands finance. You understand, I mean, all these things and culture. Um, so it's the whole deal. And, you know, I think success is, uh, is based on a number of different factors. And it's hard to be cliche and just say that, yeah. you know, it's just one or two things. Yeah, it's really an individual thing. I mean, everybody, all the successful people, I'm sure they have common attributes and characteristics, but it really, it's really an individual thing. What inspires me may not inspire you, and what motivates you won't motivate me. Right. 
So, you know, I, I look at um, our, you know, current examples like um, Elon Musk, who I think is the modern day uh, Thomas Edison. Yeah. Uh, I think we're living through a special time right now. Uh, but, you know, I look at a Mark Zuckerberg, you know, coming through Harvard, quitting Harvard, uh, happening to win the, he won the lottery on social networks. It was the time for a social network to shine and Facebook, you know, you know won the lottery. And he's brilliant and, you know, he, he did all the things right. But right now he's being pushed to go write his memoirs. Because, you know, the way you sell books now is I want to be like Mark Zuckerberg. And if you watch the movie, The Social Network, or if you kind of hung around him at Harvard, you know that it's not going to look anything like the way we're going to uh, immortalize him. Yeah, I was thinking that um, word. Yeah, people are immortalizing him. I mean, he's just, a, he's just a great, smart, hardworking guy who landed in the right spot at the right time and took advantage. But, you know, yeah. that's really the key to success right there. Everything you just said, you got to you got to work at it. Like Gary Vaynerchuk always talks about, you need to execute, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about it, but go ahead, roll up your sleeves and put in the work. And then about the right time, you know, you create that right time. Like if Mark Zuckerberg would not have executed on his idea for Facebook, it wouldn't have existed. Someone else would have done it. Right. But the time was right for the social network, whichever one, you know, to succeed. And, um, it's, you know, timing is so much of it. Luck is, a, you know, a good portion of it. You got to make yourself in a position, though, that you can take advantage. That's of it. That. Yes. And I would say that, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs would not have been on the street, you know, in a cardboard box, you know, begging for money. They'd be running probably multi-billion dollar wonderful organizations, but they might not have been in the position to win the lottery. Right. But it doesn't matter if you execute and you have the right people and the right processes and the right product and everything else. I mean, I think you can build a really successful business. And if you put yourself in that position, a very few amount of people are going to win the Powerball, the business Powerball. And they're going to be that, you know, multi-billion, trillion-dollar organization Apple could be in a couple of years. And, um, you know, they're going to make a statue of you and you're going to write books and go on speaking tours and everything else. And and, and that's the way, you know, life works. But, um, um, you know, I think entrepreneurship is much more than that. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So Jay, where are you looking to take this in, let's say, five years? Um, that's interesting, being a futurist, I'm actually not sure. <laughs> I love the analyst part of it. I love analysis. You know, I love helping companies uh, do what they do. Um, but, you know, I, I foresee a long career doing this, you know, another 20 years. Um, I will be, a, you know, a channel chief again. Uh, maybe a couple of times. I'd love to work at a partner, which I've never done. I'd love to work at a distributor, which I've never done. And uh, right now, I think it's my time to consult. So, you know, you talk about going through these phases of different types of opportunities. And when I officially do retire and go back to these 100 countries on a sailboat, I'll look back and say, you know what, I had every job in the industry. And, you know, if I write my memoirs one day, it could be about, you know, listen, I, I think I understood the different viewpoints that everyone came at it with. Yeah, especially going to all these different places and seeing the different cultures. Uh, you, you know, you should definitely pick something up from there. Absolutely. Nice. If, if you could rewind the clock, let's say 12 months, would you do anything differently? 
nothing. So if I could rewind 44 years, I would not do anything either. I'm a big fan of the butterfly effect. If you've, if you've seen that movie or know the concept. No. A butterfly flies wings can create a tornado on the other side of the earth. Uh, I wrote a blog once um, where I kind of went back to my life and what were the critical butterfly moments? If I chose left instead of right, yeah. where would I be today? And I think I grabbed, you know, 10 moments or something in my life that were absolutely critical to getting me to where I am today. And I always think if you go, went back and changed one small thing, everything would change. Everything could collapse. And um, so if you haven't seen The Butterfly Effect, it's actually an interesting movie to watch. It's not the best movie, but the concept will get your mind racing for an hour and a half. For sure. I got to check that out. And I could definitely relate to what you're saying because every now and then I contemplate uh, the different decision points that I've gone through in my life. And I was, you know, if I wouldn't have said this thing to this person or if I wouldn't have attended that networking event, none of this would have ever happened. <laughs> so I'll give you a, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan because you talked about it, but there's one show in Star Trek Next Generation that explored this concept. And basically the, you know, there is a, um, a concept where uh, every decision you make happens in an alternate universe. Yeah. If you choose to go left, your choice to go right actually does happen. And it goes in an alternate universe. So think back to, you know, the day you were born, you've made trillions of decisions, which way to comb your hair, what shirt to put on, you know, what car to take up to the big business decisions that you've made and what you would say are your most critical, you know, inflection points of your life. So if you take every one of those, what Star Trek did is invented this time continuum. Someone broke this, you know, dimension thread in space, which basically made every other enterprise appear. So in space, you had billions of enterprises that all followed different paths. Some of those led to a loss in the war against the Borg. Some of them, people were dead. Some of them, all over the map. But for a moment, you got to see uh, from all the shows prior, if they had done something different, where would they be today? Mm. And it was kind of shocking at the end as, as you saw, you know, what could have been. You know, because you actually physically get to see, you know, in that probably a dozen different examples of where things could have gone. And so you think that in your own life, like what if the space time continuum snapped and then all of a sudden you pop a billion of you popped out in, into your, uh, into your house there. <laughs> but in so many scenarios, like one of them, you know, you could be Steve jobs. I mean, one of them, you could be a multi-billionaire, yeah. you know, some of them you could be, you know, homeless <laughs> I mean, and everything in between yeah. and, and worse. Um, so you, you start thinking about that and, and you just never know. So I always get weary when somebody asks, you know, if you could change anything in your life, you're like, no, <laughs> your life may not even be that, you know, spectacular and it may not be going perfect right now, but it could be better than the alternative. Great. Great. Um, so Jay, we have time for one question from the audience. Um, so Mark Dressler, who's the CEO of a company called Office Evolution, it's a uh, shared office space, co-working facility in Hackensack, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So he asks, what is the biggest challenge you see when channel conflict arises? For example, when 
uh, you have channels that compete with one another and how do you typically address these concerns? It's a good question. So um, it happens all the time. Um, there's a couple of steps to take. One is um, you have to look at your deal registration process is where 80% of conflict happens. So you have to make sure that there's a written rules of engagement as a vendor that are published that everyone understands. Uh, you have to understand that um, the deal registration process has to be consistent and centralized. You can't have regional managers, you know, doing their own thing. It's got to go through one process consistently. And then third and most important to that question is there's got to be senior executive buy-in. So if, if a vendor has a culture of promoting direct sales and then one of these conflicts come up, at times you'll get senior executives giving mixed messages to the channel, giving mixed messages to their own companies. And whether it's consciously or subconsciously, the channel account manager or the direct sales rep might be you know, regurgitating that bias. So if you have a channel and if channel is your strategy, it's got to be bought in right up to the chairman. And if there is conflict, it's got to be, ha it's got to be addressed. It's got to be addressed openly, transparently, and you've got to over communicate to all parties. Because, you know, in, in some cases, you know, you're not going to be on the winning side of the decision. Yeah. But if you've got something that's written, you know that the vendor's consistent. So if this happened 10 more times in the future, you're going to lose 10 times in a row. The rule might not be right, but at least it's consistent. And that you know if you caught the chairman or CEO in an elevator or late at night at a hotel lobby bar, they would be able to echo, you know, why it went that way. And they might be sympathetic or empathetic, you know, to the loser of a conflict. Uh, but in the end, you know, they'll have a reason why they did what they did. Great. Thank you so much for that answer. So, Jay, I know you're a busy guy. I'm going to let you go in just a bit. Uh, but just before we do, how do people connect with you? Uh, I think I'm on 10 different social networks. Um, so the probably home base for me is a website, Jay McBain, J-A-Y-M-C-B-A-I-N.com. And that's where my blog sits. Also on the right-hand side, there's 10 different ways. My phone number's there. My email's there. All the social networks are there. My Twitter handle is the letter J. McBain, M-C-B-A-I-N, and uh, you can just tweet at me there and I'll, I'll find you. Awesome. We're going to put that in the show notes so that people can just pull it up and click on there and get right to you. Great. Okay. So, Jay, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience? I think we've, uh, I think we've covered, uh, <laughs> covered quite a bit. Um, for me, I would have a discussion over you know, where does my business, whether I'm on the partner side or the vendor side, distributor side, where does my business sit with this new shadow channel um, scenario? How do my products fit? Where do I fit, you know, going forward? And, you know, what do I need to do, you know, given this change? Second, I would look at vectors. You know, am I in the right places? Am I in the right conversations? Am I influencing the influencer if that's what I need to do? Am I taking care? Am I going to win that opportunity with that ambulatory care clinic? Am I in the room? Do I have the right representation? So understanding vectors is critical. And then third and finally, uh, take a look at the demographics and how they affect your business. If you're a partner, you've got to look at you know, your own scenario and look at what 
you know, perhaps your exit plan or your um, transition plan is. Uh, if you're a vendor, you've got to look at your channel community and understand where that's, um, where that's going and, uh, you know, be able to make the right decisions, you know, knowing that that's coming. You, you can't wait three or four years and have it hit you by surprise. Yeah. Awesome. Jay, my mind is totally blown. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch this episode at least 10 times. Uh, so I appreciate all the great advice and wisdom that you've offered. And thank you so much for joining. All right. Thank you. It's great to chat. <laughs>